0: Welcome to Footsteps of the Fallen, a great war podcast with me, battlefield researcher, historian, and writer Matt Dixon. For the last 30 years, I've been visiting the cemeteries, memorials, and battlefields of the First World War. And in this series of podcasts, I'd like to take you on a journey through France, Belgium, and further afield and tell you the stories of some of the places I visited and the stories of the men who lie as the dead of the Great War. So pack up your kit bag and join me as we walk the well-trodden paths on the battlefields, following in the footsteps of the fallen. It's a pleasure to have your company. So welcome to this latest episode of Footsteps of the Fallen. And as always, thank you very much indeed for joining me. It's a real pleasure to have your company. And if this is the uh, first time that you've joined us, we had a lot of new listeners recently, then you are very welcome. It's delightful to have your company. If you're one of our seasoned campaigners, the old sweats who's coming back to listen to another episode, then uh, thank you for your continued support. And uh, talking about support, uh, we've had the uh, real honour of having a new supporter join us on Patreon. And uh, Neil Haslam, thank you very very much indeed it's very kind of you and uh, thank you very much indeed for uh, helping to support the creative process and uh, everything that we raise via buy me a coffee and uh, patreon goes back into the uh, podcast itself it helps cover the costs of uh, hosting the uh, podcast and the website and things like that so thank you very very much indeed so it's been a very exciting week here at uh, Footsteps HQ because the day that I've been waiting for for such a long time has finally arrived, and the book that I've written with my great friend uh, Simon Button, uh, called "Remember Him at the Altar," has uh, finally been published uh, by Helion. It's live on their website, and it's uh, really really exciting to uh, actually see your name on the cover of a book. It's something I'm very proud of, and it's uh, been a, such a long uh, sort of journey through uh, researching the men on the war memorial from my old school that um kind of this is really i suppose the culmination of uh, what's become almost a sort of a, a lifetime's work certainly her over half my life has been de- uh, devoted to uh, researching the war and it's a hugely proud moment to sort of see the book uh, come out and be published and uh, and that sort of thing and um i say it's uh, you can find it on uh, the helion and company uh, website it's a uh, slightly discounted price at the uh, moment because it's uh, a new release and um of course i would uh Absolutely encourage... All of you to go and purchase a copy. And um, one of the things that I decided to do to uh, say thank you to our supporters on uh, Patreon and buy me a coffee was to do a little uh, prize draw. And uh, one person whose name was pulled out would win a signed copy of the book. And uh, the um, draw was done this morning. It was uh, done by my um, son, which was uh, very kind of him. Um, unfortunately, I managed to knock a, a whole cup of coffee all over my desk at the time while we were pulling the name out. But the name that came out was Kenny Moore. And uh, Kenny, congratulations. Um, obviously, been in touch with you, and I will get the uh, signed book sent to you. And uh, Kenny's been a great supporter of the podcast uh, over the past uh, year or so, and a uh, very, very uh, sort of uh, enthusiastic listener. And it's a real pleasure to be able to give something back to. So where are we in today's journey through the footsteps of the fallen? Well, um, usually when we're planning uh, or whether when I'm planning podcast episodes, uh, I'm not very organised I generally don't really decide what I'm going to talk about until I, about an hour before I sit down in front of the microphone. But this week has been slightly different and I was inspired by listening to Paul Reed's excellent episode of The Old Frontline, uh, where he talked about his um, sort of 40 odd years of visiting the battlefields of the First World War and what it means to him and that got me thinking about sort of my experience that I've had over the past 30 or so years of visiting uh, the battlefields and I decided today that I was going to go back to where my interest in the First World War began. As I'm sure many of you will know if you've listened to the uh, interviews that I did with uh, Mike Cunha and with uh, with Paul, it uh, really came for me about when I was uh, quite, uh, quite a bit younger and this was in the day before mobile phones when it wasn't possible to just pop onto the internet and sort of uh, change a a ferry booking or something like that. But we were coming back from holiday and um, we were about uh, two and a half hours Earlier than we should have been, and um, my dad was uh, driving the car and decided to sort of pull off the motorway, and we stopped and we visited Canadian Cemetery Number no. Two near Vimy Ridge, and so it was the first Commonwealth War Cemetery that I visited, and the battlefield around Vimy is somewhere that um, has always interested me, and I think it's probably because it's where my, uh, as I said, my kind of my journey through the. Uh, the history and the study of uh, the Great War and the visiting the battlefields of the Great War first began. And it's a really interesting area. There's an awful lot of history crammed in there. And it's a very spectacular sort of landscape as well. And um, What we are going to do today is visit a remarkable cemetery that stands um, just outside uh, Vimy on the road towards uh, the uh, village of uh, Suchet and it's um, one of the largest cemeteries in this part of the battlefield. It's called Cabaret Rouge. It contains about seven and a half thousand burials and um, most of these are... um, Unidentified. In fact, over half of them are unidentified. And um, it's odd because this was created as a concentration uh, cemetery after the war. The original cemetery itself was begun, um, I think, by the 47th London Division in about 1916, uh, I think, when they were holding this part of the line. And then it was obviously uh, added to by uh, men of the Canadian Corps following the fighting uh, in 1917. And it was used up until um, August um 1917 by the canadians and it then sort of became a burial ground for whichever regiment happened to be holding the line at that particular part of um the front and uh, one of the really interesting things about it is it's a cemetery that tells the story of world war one because there are graves from every year of the war from 1914 right the way through to 1918 and it's a real sort of um I say it's a, it's an area, uh, it's a, it's a cemetery rather that uh, that tells stories of individuals because there's such a huge variety of um, men and ranks and regiments. I spent uh, several hours in the uh, cemetery and I counted uh, over a hundred different regiments that were uh, had a uh, dead uh, buried in there and a cemetery, graves from each year of the war. So in today's journey, we're going to pay a visit to cabaret rouge and do one of our journeys through a cemetery the cemetery itself sits on the d937 which is the main road that runs from arras to beitune and it poxes through uh, a number of uh, villages and sites that are sort of perennially associated with the fighting in 1917 the battle of arras but as I said there was uh, there was action in this part of the front line throughout All of the Great War and um, when you come to the cemetery it's um, got a remarkable vista on it. The design is quite spectacular as if you view it from above it looks like a sort of very large uh, kind of diamond shape and as you enter into the cemetery there's a sort of uh, the graves are kind of in a almost circular Form with the uh, the war stone, and it always reminds me when you look at them of of, as if you drop sort of a a pebble into a a pond or something like that, and you see the ripples spreading out from it. And then, as you look down the central sort of uh, walkway at the uh, further end of the cemetery, there are trees planted um, on each side of the central walkway, which frame beautifully the cross of sacrifice, which stands at the end. And if you look across to the left in the far distance, you see the rolling edge. The Lorette Ridge with the magnificent French memorial of Notre Dame de Lorette looking down over the landscape. It's incredibly beautiful. It's a very, very clever design, and um, it's a really, uh, I think, a a must see for anyone who has um, an interest in. World War I cemeteries and, and the history of this particular part of the battlefield. Uh, the cemetery itself, as I say, is called Cabaret Rouge. And a cabaret is one of those strange um, French words which has a, a number of, uh, of different meanings. But I think um, sort of the, the probably the most commonly accepted usage of it is a, a cabaret was a, a cafe or an estaminé, sort of like a roadside um, cafe. And uh, before the war, there was... On this part of the road, a cafe that stood on this site. It had uh, obviously red walls, red brick walls, and a red roof, and it was known as the Red Cafe or the Cabaret Rouge. And uh, of course, as the fighting sort of ebbed and flowed through this part of Artois, the cafe itself was sort of slowly destroyed. There was really no chance whatsoever that it was going to um, survive the war and by the sort of uh, spring of 1915 it, it was literally just a pile of rubble but the red brick sort of stood out in the otherwise sort of like mud covered landscape even though it were just sort of like fragments and bits of uh, brick by this stage but it did provide a kind of landmark and a sort of I suppose we would say almost like a waypoint for troops and the name Cabaret Rouge uh, sort of uh, stuck and has remained as such to this day. In fact, the uh, the sort of the pile of bricks was such a sort of um, a, 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 an important reference point on the battlefield that this entire sector of the front line became known as the the Cabaret Rouge, and there uh, was also a, a communication trench, a, a British communication trench that ran across the battlefield. This part that was called Cabaret Rouge uh, Trench, and um, when the uh, British took over this part of the front line from um, the uh, The French in nineteen fifteen they began this cemetery and um it was um say used for uh mainly by men of the uh, the forty seventh the division the London division who were holding the line at this particular time of course it then begs the question that if the cemetery was begun in 1916 why are there graves from 1914 and 1915 uh, um well the cemetery itself was what was called a concentration cemetery so after the war had finished the uh, sort of unenviable task of clearing the battlefields of dead uh, began and there was this sort of period of consolidation where the t- lots and hundreds and hundreds of uh, tiny battlefield cemeteries were concentrated down into single large uh, cemeteries much much easier to manage and it all. Also enabled um, the uh, the local population and particularly the farmers to reclaim their fields and get back to some sort of uh, normality by concentrating these small sort of battlefield cemeteries. And one would imagine probably that the casualties from 1914 who were buried here were probably buried at the time by the Germans, and their graves were then sort of recovered um, after the war, and they were kind of reinterred. Into this massive concentration cemetery, and it's a real testament, as well, I think, to the nature of the fighting here and the conditions of the battlefield that of the seven and a half thousand graves. Over half of them are unidentified soldiers. Which, for someone who um, like me who has a real interest in the this, the headstone to soldier of the Great War, it's a fascinating place to visit. And I always managed to find at least one that I haven't got in my uh, my collection of, uh, of photographs and and that sort of thing. This particular sector of the battlefield was held by the French until March uh, 1916 and obviously um, as those of you listening to the podcast will know I talk a lot about the battles of 1915 that were fought and of course this was an area of battlefield that was part of the huge French offensive uh, during uh, the spring and summer of uh, 1915 and once the uh, the sort of offensives had uh, kind of died down in this part of the battlefield it became an area where both sides practiced what was called live and let." Live with so it's a sort of relatively speaking quiet um part of the line i mean it's not to say you could go and stick your head above the parapet and have a good peer at the germans because you'd probably get a bullet through it if you did but there were no sort of major attacks in this part of the battlefield and um aside from sort of the daily um regular shell fire that both sides would chuck at each other it was as i say a fairly sort of quiet uh period of the line and this continued actually really through the summer and into the autumn and then the winter of uh, 1915 and it um it wasn't until february 1916, when uh, the Germans suddenly decided out of the blue that they were going to launch uh, two attacks against the French who were holding this part of the front. And um, they um, actually managed to capture a section of the French line down at a place called Zouave uh, Valley, which um, is uh, an area that I'd highly recommend visiting. It contains, for me, one of the most... sort of atmospheric and uh, i think a uh, beautiful cemetery is anywhere on the western front called Zouar valley uh, cemetery and um it's well worth a a visit but as part of the uh, the fighting that the germans launched with this attack in uh, in 1916 they captured a small hill that kind of dominated the battlefield it was known as the pimple and it um sort of lay between the villages of, of Suchet and um Givenchy on Goel. And it was a sort of very useful point because this, uh, like much of the Artois battlefield, was fairly flat and any sort of uh, raise of height gave a great sort of advantage to those that hold it. And the French held uh, this section until March um, 1916. And it was uh, really when the uh, German offensive at Verdun began that uh, troops began to be moved away from this sector and the British then took over um, in March 1916 and it was when the British took over that this sort of idea of live and let live that had been so prevalent in this sector kind of died a death really and um, the um, there was a sort of lot of action but one of the main problems that the British had when they took over uh, this part of the line was the really really appallingly bad condition of the trenches and uh, there was much sort of uh, I think probably resentment one could say amongst the British troops that the uh, that the French sort of left the trenches in the condition that they did. There was some dead... Uh, men and uh, and dead horses uh, strewn all over the place. They were dead who uh, hadn't been buried from the previous uh, spring, and um, I say the trenches were were really in a very poor state of repair. So the British kind of went on the um, on the sort of hygiene and cleanliness uh, offensive, and sort of tidied up this uh, part of sector of the line and reinforced the trenches and uh, buried the dead as far as they were able to, uh, given the conditions on uh, the battlefield. And and um, what uh, their sort of arrival of the British saw there was a great increase in the amount of fighting that took place in this area, there was sniping and there was uh, mining activity as well started to become very, very prevalent um, uh, on this particular section of the battlefield. The first grave of note that we're going to look at in the cemetery belongs to a man by the name of Lieutenant Duncan Ramsey now he was uh, in the second Royal Sussex regiment but at the time of uh, his death in uh, December uh, 1914 he was attached to the second Queens the uh, the Royal West Surrey regiment now he was killed in action on the 18th of of uh, December 1914. And um, what's uh, interesting about him is that we have a uh, a sort of personal account of one of the men who was involved in the action that was to cost uh, Ramsey his uh, life. And he was one of um, eight officers who became uh, casualties when uh, there was a, a night attack was made on the uh, on the German uh, trenches and this was done to support a, a battalion slightly across to, uh, to their um, right hand side and it was after this uh, action that he was actually reported uh, missing and um, there was a strange sort of situation where a truce was called between the British and the Germans to allow both sides to go out and sort of collect their dead and, and, and wounded. Unfortunately his, uh, his body wasn't um, found and what it uh, believed to happen is that the Germans had actually probably already um, buried him. And um, there was this strange situation where the two of the British officers were actually invited to go into the German trench and they were invited in uh, under the um, sort of uh, guise of going to see a wounded uh, British officer. And they believed that this officer was, in fact, um, Lieutenant uh, Ramsey But the problem was is that when they went into the trenches, they were then taken prisoner um, by the Germans and um, they were. Allowed to leave, and in the um, archives is a, a remarkable document from uh, a man by the name of uh, Charles Gardner. Rort. now, he was one of the officers that was involved in the raid that um, that was to cost Ramsey his life. But he was taken prisoner. He was a very, very sort of a new uh, soldier. He had uh, only joined the uh, battalion on the thirteenth of uh, November, and he was saying he was uh, taken prisoner, remained a prisoner. Until the November uh, 1918, now Rought before the war was uh, was actually uh, an international standard rower. He'd won a gold uh, medal with the coxed fours for Great Britain at the 1912 Olympics. And the War Diary of the Second Queen describes him as being one of sort of four uh, probationary second lieutenants who joined on the 13th of November. Um, there was another man by the name of Second Lieutenant Edward Atherston. Walmsley and um, he'd only arrived with the uh, with the battalion on the 10th of December and he joined uh, sort of uh, say uh, literally about a week before he was killed and um, Duncan Ramsay was also part of these sort of probationary officers and um, what's happened when uh, when Rort was released at the end of the war he wrote about what happened and it's quite remarkable I'm going to read the letter or the uh, of the narrative that he wrote about what in the incident I was working until well into the night with rescue parties. Many of our wounded were lying close up to the enemy lines and we'd been unable to get to them. The men in our trenches stood to arms the whole night as we were expecting a counterattack. And just as it was growing light, I heard some of them say the enemy were leaving their trenches. I looked over our parapet and saw some Germans bending over our wounded, but almost simultaneously some of our men fired and the Germans disappeared. About an hour later, the Germans showed themselves again, and our men were told not to fire. Seeing our doctor standing on the parapet and going out and thinking I should be of help in getting the wounded in. And also that by being in no man's land, I might show our men that Germans intended letting us bring in our wounded and that they may not fire. I followed the doctor out. And after looking at a few men I found to be dead, heard the Germans calling. We are peaceful. We are peaceful. Take your comrades. I went off to the right to a point in the German advanced trench where I thought I might find Lieutenant Ramsay who we thought had been wounded the previous evening. As I got up to the front line, which was partly a firing trench and partly a natural ditch cross wide, I saw a number of our wounded. I was just starting to lift a man when a German soldier called, ''Officer?'' I said, ''Yes,'' and he replied, ''Our officer wishes to speak to you.'' The officer said that our men might take back the wounded, but the rifles must be left where they were. This demand I thought quite reasonable and shouted to the men within earshot accordingly.'' The German officer made one or two further remarks, amongst other things he said pointing to our dead and wounded. The Englishmen are very brave. I was now standing close to a sap running from the advanced trench to the main firing line and started to move off to lift one of our fellows who was laying close by. Several of our NCOs and men were by this time hard at work amongst Germans who were also helping to rescue the wounded but the German officer grabbed my arm and said I was not to go. For a moment I remonstrated and after saying something in German the officer shrugged and said war is war. I made some remark in which I used the word treachery whereupon I was pulled by some soldiers evidently by command of their officer into their sap and drawn into their main trench. The officer held a revolver to my head and said that if I repeated my remarks he would shoot me dead. He called somewhat and stated that I must see his commandant and with his permission might return to my own lines. But as I had seen their position, he must keep me. It was now I noticed Lieutenant Walmsley and saw the Germans taking his equipment from him. He was about 20 yards distant and they brought him and one or two men and sent us down their trench under escort. As we passed away to our left, we could still see Germans mixed up with our men attending to the wounded in no man's land. We were harangued by an officer with a red cross band around his arm. Speaking fluent English, he said we had fired on the white flag and we were to be shot. I mean, it's an absolutely remarkable uh, document and a, a, a sort of remarkable story, but it, very sadly that, uh, say, Ramsey was never found and assumed that he was uh, obviously killed uh, during this raid and his uh, body was clearly recovered after the war and he was uh, laid to rest finally in uh, the grave that he now lies in in Cabaret Rouge. As I was walking around the cemetery, I came across a grave that contained two men buried in the same grave. They were both uh, named and they were members of the Royal Flying Corps. And of course, it's uh, sort of when we look at uh, you know aircraft of, of today, particularly military aircraft, it's very hard to kind of uh, sort of think back that uh, it's uh, 1915 when uh, the two men whose grave are found died. It was only 12 years since the first uh, kind of powered flight had taken place and aviation was still the great sort of um, unknown and this massive massive adventure for, uh, for for the young men who volunteered to join uh, the Royal Flying Corps and the two men who were buried in the grave were called um, lieutenant Dennis Corbett Wilson. Uh, he was the pilot of the plane that was shot down, and uh, his observer was man by the name of Second Lieutenant Isaac Newton Woodywiss. And I was struck by the name because obviously Woodywiss is a very unusual name, but also his first name's Isaac. Newton, and uh, obviously it's sort of got me wondering: was there any connection to uh, the the famous uh, scientist? And as we'll see uh, very shortly, there there actually there is there is a, a family connection between the two of them. But uh, Corbett uh, Wilson, who was uh, piloting the plane um, that uh, was um, killed, shot down rather on the tenth of May, nineteen fifteen, was something of an eccentric uh, chap. And I think a lot of members of the Royal Flying Corps were rather eccentric. I think you have to have a certain mindset to um, have uh, got involved in. Uh, the flying of these wonderful um uh, machines and um he um, had actually uh, qualified as a pilot on his own expense. In 1911, he travelled out to Po in the uh, the Pyrenees and uh, attended um, a, an aviation uh, school, and he'd uh, qualified as a as, as a pilot. And um, he came from a very, very wealthy family. He was a very comfortably well-off um, young man. And once he'd qualified as a pilot, he actually went out and bought himself a, a plane. This was a, a single-seater a Blairio, um plane. And he went on to sort of complete a number of sort of aviation. Records. He was the first um, man to fly uh, across the Irish Sea, and um, this was, you know, quite a remarkable achievement. And everything went well until he got to um, Ireland um, because um, the uh, the weather changed when he got over the Irish coast. It started raining, and it um, the rain got into his engine, and it um, uh, sort of uh, caused the plane to develop problems. And his compass stopped working because it was filled with uh, with um, rainwater. And he did um, manage to um, uh, land safely, and then. Uh, repaired the plane and flew back to England. And he was a man that um, preferred um, to take his own plane rather than go on the train, whether they were going to sort of his family were going to visit people or um, not content with uh, his exploits of flying across the Irish Sea. He then uh, performed a, an even more sort of difficult flight in 1913 where he flew over the Jura Alps in a, a Blairio two seater aircraft. And he was a, an avid letter writer. He wrote huge numbers of letters to his mother. And uh, in, uh, I think it was 2000 six a book was published um, called um, letters from an early bird and it's a collection of the letters that uh, he wrote and uh, they're, they're quite interesting to read you say he's a very sort of um uh, he's quite an interesting um character but uh, he say he was killed um i think probably by anti-aircraft fire on the 10th of may and his observer say he was the uh, second lieutenant woody wisp was uh, also killed in it as well and uh, so i was intrigued by this surname woody wisp and when he started looking into it the the woody wisp family were um uh, they came from uh, the east of England. And they were very heavily involved in the uh, the railways, uh, both the the building of and, and running of the railways. But of course, I think really it was his Christian names of Isaac Newton that really caught my attention. And it turns out that he was actually a relative of the great Sir Isaac Newton, uh, the scientist. Uh, he had um, attended uh, Cheltenham College and uh, he uh, went to Sandhurst during which time he joined the Lincolnshire Regiment, and he came. Uh, he was another man who came from uh, great means. His uh, his family home was transformed during the war; it became sort of a, a convalescent home for uh, officers, and um, the uh, all the majority of the staff of the home joined up to uh, lead uh, to join the uh, army. And um, uh, the family, and particularly the coachman, was very upset when the, uh, the magnificent horses that used to pull the family coach were commandeered by the army and sent into action. Uh, he. Had had a, a number of sisters who also fought in the war, as part, or sorry, were part of the war effort in, in the Women's Auxiliary Army Corps, and um, the remainder of his sisters went and did jobs in London. And I think there's something very poignant that these uh, two uh, men who were instilled with this sort of spirit of uh, bravery and adventure that came with men of the Royal Flying Corps um, should have gone through experiences in life and then lie buried in the same grave as each other, having lost their lives together, and there remain comrades in death just as they were comrades in life very poignant when one spends quite a lot of time visiting the battlefields um, over a period of years, there are all certain incidents that happen sometimes that will stick in your memory. And one of mine came at about 2000 and uh, I think it was about 2009, 2010, something like that. And I was visiting the battlefields. I was around the area of uh, Bully, nuit Neuilimin. It's a pretty a pretty grim bit of the, the battlefield, very industrial around there. And I was visiting a cemetery. And for the life of me, I can't remember which cemetery it was, but it uh, involved me parking my car in a sort of slightly dodgy side street and having to go down an alleyway between some houses into the field behind where the uh, cemetery was. And there was a large collection of French chaps who were sort of standing smoking cigarettes and drinking beer on the corner as I walked past. And it was uh, starting to get, um, it was kind of sort of twilight, so starting to come towards uh, evening time. And I went down and walked uh, down to the cemetery and um, did what I needed to do. And I was walking back when I saw a particularly large member of these, uh, this group of, a Frenchman sort of uh, covered in tattoos wearing a singlet coming across the fields towards me carrying a crowbar in his hand and um, my instinctive reaction was I'm about to get my head caved in or and robbed of my passport and ev- anything else that I happen to have with me at the time uh, and I'm fortunate enough that I speak fluent French and I um, managed to sort of uh, acknowledge the chap and he um, what he sort of said to me was oh, are you interested in uh, World War One because I saw you visiting the cemetery and I was who I think are probably going to get away with without some misfortune happening to me. And I explained, yes, yes, I was. And he said, "Oh, just come and have a look." He said they. Turned out that they were builders who were working on a very large house that was being built there. And he said, "Oh, you must come and have a look." And what had happened was that they'd um, they'd stopped work because as part of the excavations they'd uncovered what appeared to be a British. Uh, machine gun position and uh, they had they sort of uh, showed me where it was and they said we've got to wait because it's got to go to um, archaeology and uh, we've also um, uncovered sort of bits of uh, of human remains and that sort of thing it was really really interesting to see and he also showed me he said um, he said oh come and have a look at this And we went around to the side of the house and there was this enormous uh, pile of what I presumed to be uh, spoil or earth or something like that covered with a tarpaulin and he uh, pulled the tarpaulin back and it was the biggest collection of machine gun and rifle ammunition I've ever seen in my life this pile must have been I would say probably at least three meters high and probably four meters across and it was all munitions that they unearthed as part of the uh, the building works that they were uh, undertaking at the time and um, I did some uh, research and it was indeed a a, a frontline British frontline trench dating back from about 1917 and as we uh, heard during the interview I did with uh, Simon Verdigam the Belgian archaeologist it's very very common that during these sort of building works and and labouring that uh, they uncover a Remnants of the First World War and in nineteen 1920- twenty. Six so uh, about uh, eight years after the war, had finished. A large amount of the land around this part of the battlefield had been reclaimed by the residents. And they were very keen to obviously try and put the um, the scars of war out of the battlefield, out of the fields rather, and um, sort of get back to normality. And the farmer who owned some land um, near the village of uh, Givenchy was uh, ploughing uh, his fields uh, to try and sort of get them back to um, use for agriculture. When his plough became jammed on... On a uh, piece of timber that had um, it was buried under the ground, and as he uh, went to go and free the piece of timber, he uh, dropped through the ground and sort of landed on this staircase of what was obviously a British dugout. And contained inside the dugout, it was discovered there were the bodies of two. British officers and they were identified as members of uh, B company of the 2nd Royal Welsh Fusiliers man by the name of second lieutenant Trevor Allington Crossland and a man by the name of captain Owen Price Edwards and they were reported uh, missing in a German action that took place in the early hours of the 22nd of June in 1916. Because the uh, the Germans fired a, a mine under the British trenches, and this was a sort of preliminary to a, a trench raid taking place. And the crater that this mine formed became known as Red dragon crater and it was uh, obviously because of the association with the, the cat badge of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers and um, what uh, is quite uh, remarkable about uh, Crossland, it's a very sad story actually, he was only 19 years old and he um was described by uh, one man who was uh, present in the battalion at the time as being um sort of giddy with excitement that um he uh, was going up into the, uh, the front line trenches and this was sort of like the highlight of uh, his uh, short life up to this point and he uh, arrived in the trenches a little before 3 hours in advance of the mine being exploded so he'd only been in the front line for a little less than four hours when he was to lose his life and both um, men were subsequently so when their bodies were identified were reburied um, in the cemetery and they still lie here to this day but curiously enough even though they died to uh, together they're not actually buried next to each other and they're in the same plot but in different rows to each other. It's a really interesting cemetery just to walk around and walk up and down the rows of graves and see what you can find. And my eye was caught uh, by various uh, headstones. There were two uh, men who died on Christmas Day 1916 together. There was uh, another man I found who uh, died on his birthday and there was um, a really sort of interesting collection of regiments and some sort of uh, quite sort of lesser known regiments as well uh, there were uh, sort of men from uh, the veterinary corps and um, there was uh, army chaplains corps and uh, there were four graves to men who were part of the water tank detachment and these were men who were responsible for bringing supplies of fresh water up to troops at the front obviously absolutely vital for um, any soldier and of course the animals as well they used the horses to have uh, supplies of, uh, of drinkable. Water. And as I say it's a real sort of cross section almost this cemetery of the British Army. It's a real reflection of those regiments of the line that served in this part of the battlefield. It gives you a, a real sort of flavour and a real taste of the uh, the huge variety of uh, graves that there are. But one of the things that I always do whenever I'm visiting a cemetery is I was a particular interest in looking out for graves of my family regiment. My family uh, were all cavalry soldiers, they served in either the Ninth Lancers or the Queen's own Oxfordshire Hussars rather unkindly referred to as the queer objects on horseback and as i was walking around the uh, cemetery i came across the grave of a man by the name of lieutenant colonel john willoughby scott dso who was part of the queen's own oxford hussars who was killed on the 23rd of april 1917 and when i did a little bit of research into him he was a, a remarkably eccentric uh, man i have a, a love of uh, eccentricity and i think anyone that's sort of a bit of a quirk and bucks the trend is uh, is definitely worth paying an interest to. Scott was a barrister by trade but he had previously served in the military as part of the Royal Artillery where he'd served in the uh, South African War and when he uh, came back he went uh, back to legal practice but when uh, war broke out he uh, was very very keen to uh, enlist and rejoined the the Queen's own Oxford Hussars and he arrived in France on about sort of late September 1914 and um, Scott was in command of uh, a squadron which is also the squadron that one of my great great uncles was serving in and the job that a squadron were given when they got to France was they were required to provide the guard at uh, Santa Mer on the coast where um, Sir John French's um, HQ was located this was also the location of of, um, general headquarters and where Sir John French had his uh, personal quarters. And whilst this was obviously a very important job because, you know, you've got to keep the the boss safe, it was really boring. And um, one of the things that um, uh, Scott uh, had this uh, nasty habit of doing was getting himself into all sorts of uh, scrapes. Now, he was obviously a member of the officer class, a very, very well-to-do chap. Um, And there was this extraordinary situation where he and two fellow officers, um, a man by the name of Captain Herman Hodge... And uh, a Lieutenant Gill, who were all is uh, suitably uh, equally affluent to each other, had arranged for their private motor vehicles to be shipped over to France with them. And they took great delight in, I suppose we would almost call it like joyriding uh, behind uh, the lines at sort of this breakneck speed and getting themselves into, uh, say, all kinds of trouble. Uh, Scott was renowned for um, uh, driving his car whilst wearing a flying uh, goggles and a sort of flying helmet that he'd won in a, a game of cards with an officer from the uh, the, the Royal Flying Corps who uh, had uh, their officers club at Saint-Omer. And um, as I said, him and uh, the, these other two officers took great delight in uh, tearing round uh, sort of the behind the front lines at this breakneck speed in these uh, Rolls-Royce cars that they'd had uh, shipped over. And uh, they were driving up the, uh, the men in road in Ypres and they came across a large group of uh, British soldiers who were actually digging in and uh, when they asked um, where the front line was they were um, told by the soldiers well you're actually on it at the moment the Germans are only about sort of 400 meters away and if you're not going to help then uh, I suggest you uh, get out of here as quickly as possible and uh, thankfully as I say they were in motor vehicles and were obviously able to get away very, very quickly. And um, as I said, I think the problem that Scott faced was that uh, boredom uh, had a nasty tendency to get him into trouble. And it was very clear that he uh, was a man who was desperate to be up at the front, really wanted to be part of the fighting. But um, as I say, with these guard duties, it was very, very tedious to do. But thankfully, he was very well connected in the regiment. and There was an officer by the name of Major John Strange Spencer Churchill. He was actually related to to Winston Churchill. He was his younger brother and he was a great friend with uh, Sir John French and he managed over the course of dinner with Sir John French one night to uh, persuade him to allow the uh, regiment to be sent uh, up into the line itself, and they duly did. And in uh, November, the uh, Queen's Own Hussars took over the line around Vulvergem. Uh, and Scott remained with the regiment until uh, I think it was about sort of June or, or July 1915, uh, when he um, took over as uh, second in command. He was promoted, and then he six months later he was sent to become the commanding officer of the Eighth. Somerset uh, Light Infantry and he uh, actually stayed with that regiment until he uh, lost his uh, life in the famous attack at uh, Greenland Hill which something we looked at when we looked at the um, the fighting uh, around mont le in, in a previous um, podcast and um, it's a sort of testament I think to the man to say that he obviously was very well known for his antics of, uh, of joyriding around uh, the battlefield but when his uh, news of his death came to his old regiment it was um, met with sort of real uh, kind of catastrophe and great uh, sadness. And I think what's um, obvious to see when you look through uh, the personal recollections is that despite his eccentricity, Scott was a man who was clearly held in a huge amount of esteem by his uh, former uh, regiment. And and he was, uh, I think, by all accounts, an exceptional soldier. And uh, uh, his loss was uh, a very uh, greatly felt by his regiment even though he'd been away from them from such a long period of time. The Great War is a very emotive subject and there are certain things that some people feel incredibly strongly about and they arouse sort of very great emotions in people but when studying the First World War I think there are very few subjects that cause as much uh, debate and uh, maybe disillusionment in people as those situations of the three 106 men of the British Expeditionary Force who were shot at dawn by their own side for a variety of different offences. And as we walk through Cabaret Rouge Cemetery, we come to a grave of a man by the name of John. James Wishard. Now he was a private in the 7th battalion of the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers and he was shot dead by a firing party of uh, men on the 15th of June 1917. And I always have an interest in uh, these uh, these situations as to what uh, led the men to do the act that caused them problems. And uh, Wishard is is a sad tale about uh, a young man who i think was very disillusioned with life in the trench but also was undergoing a huge amount of emotional strain at the time he was born in 1893 in omar in uh, northern ireland and uh, he was the eldest of uh, of three children his father was a soldier in uh, the royal indiskilling uh Fusalliers who'd fought in the uh, the Boer war and he came um back from overseas service in 1902 when the family moved uh, to Belfast and they lived uh, just off uh, that area of the Falls uh, Road and um, then they moved again and by 1911 they were living in the markets um, area which um, at the time was sort of um, two and three bedroom sort of terraced uh, tenement houses and they were mainly inhabited by sort of fairly poor uh, working class uh, Catholic uh, families and it was in 1909 whilst living here that John um, got himself into a, a number of uh, scrapes um, with uh, the law, he uh, appeared uh, in front of the uh, magistrates on numerous occasions for various offences. But the most uh, severe of these offences was uh, when he stole uh, a gun from uh, Smithfield uh, Market. And he was spotted uh, making a, an escape by a constable across uh, the roof. And in his desire to escape, he lost his uh, footing. And he actually fell through the roof of the market and landed on the top of, uh, of a market uh, stall. And he, um, he quite badly injured his head and his legs. and uh, But he managed to sort of get away and he's, uh, he was um, patched up uh, back home and he was subsequently arrested at his home address and he went to um, trial and um, it's a curious incident that happened in the trial that he um, said absolutely nothing throughout the whole of his uh, trial he didn't offer any defense didn't offer any explanation and um, um miraculously the judge seemed to have sort of taken a uh, pity um, on him and um, uh, felt that uh, falling through the roof and the injuries he'd suffered were uh, kind of sufficient punishments nothing happened to him what's not clear is why uh, he stole this gun in the first place. There is some suggestion in the days leading up to the incident that he'd been involved in um, some violent uh, disorder in the City itself and whether this was religiously motivated, politically motivated I, I don't know. It could be perhaps uh, he was in fear. We we don't know but whatever happened to say he did uh, steal uh, this firearm and obviously paid a, quite a heavy price to his own uh, personal well-being. But thankfully for uh, John he sort of managed to turn his uh, life around when he met a, a local girl by the name of Maggie Byrne, and they got married together on the thirtieth of January, nineteen fourteen. John sort of went to kind of uh, into respectability, got his job as a, as a market porter, and life was going uh, reasonably um, well for them. And they had a son who was born in nineteen fourteen, and in the the maternity block for, for poor and uh, destitute women in uh, in Belfast. Um, but um, their son, who was uh, christened George, uh, very sadly only lived for a week before he died and they were forced to bury um him in the uh, in the city cemetery and this uh, death of his son seems to have had a very, very sort of profound effect on John and it may very well be that um it was sort of these memories of this uh, the death of his son that contributed to what happened uh, later in the war when the war broke out John's father immediately reenlisted and he went into the 6 battalion of the Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers and um John then went and enlisted uh, in the same, uh, in the 7th Battalion, rather, in uh, roundabout. We think it was probably August, September um, 1915. And it was when he first went into the military that his problems with military discipline sort of uh, began because he was posted to a camp in Buncrana and he uh, went missing. Um, And the reasons for his uh, desertion have uh, never quite been um, established, but he was uh, arrested and he was uh, sent to a court martial where he was found guilty and he got a hundred and twelve days detention in military prison. As soon as he finished his uh, detention, he was sent over to France uh, with the Seventh Battalion. And at the time he went over to France, his uh, wife was uh, very, very heavily pregnant with uh, the, their second child. And shortly after John had left Ireland, their daughter by the name of Susan was born on the 31st of May and one of the problems that uh, soldiers faced it on the western front throughout the winter of 1916 and 1917 was it was a particularly miserable cold wet horrible winter and uh, the the weather conditions were generally atrocious throughout the winter and the front was a very very unpleasant place to be as an infantry soldier and it was whilst he was serving in the trenches that john got a telegram I- I- advising that uh, his daughter was uh, very very seriously ill and i think uh, what possibly happened is this triggered memories about the the death of his son and it set into to sort of train a uh, a series of uh, maybe sort of psychological reactions i don't know but uh, certainly his behaviour changed and he tried to get himself a leave pass to allow him to return home. Unfortunately the military authorities denied this uh, request. He heard no news until the new year of uh, 1917 and um, obviously I mean it was incredibly difficult for this man is serving in these terribly difficult conditions of course with the anxiety about what is happening at home and being absolutely unable to do um, anything about it and what um, what it was sort of quite um, interesting to note was that um, by the time the spring of 1917 came about the majority of men who had uh, been serving with the regiment um, the NCOs and men had actually been granted uh, leave but because John arrived with the regiment later on he was one of the those who hadn't actually had um, any leave and he was forced to sort of uh, remain uh, on the front as uh, winter went through into spring and this, they uh, say this sort of lack of uh, news about what was happening with his daughter must have been it must have weighed incredibly heavily on him I know personally I'm, I'm not very good at waiting for things when I'm uh, when I'm stressed I find it makes me even more stressed so goodness knows what uh, obviously must have been going through this poor man's head waiting for news to come in about his sick daughter. On the 30th of March, John had been uh, part of a group of men who'd been uh, sent to work at uh, Atappler, the massive uh, base camp, and he uh, was ordered to return to his uh, regiment and they had uh, gone up to the, the large town of Hazebrook, which sat almost on the border between France and uh, Belgium, and when uh, the following day the uh, troops paraded at uh, Hazerbrook Station, a roll call was taken, it was found that John was missing, and when they got to uh, Bayer, which was about What's up? I don't know, maybe about 10 miles away. Another roll call was taken and he still wasn't there. And of course, where he was actually at the time was he was on his way to Boulogne because he believed that that was the most likely uh, way that he was going to be able to get back across the uh, channel. And um, other uh, men who'd been in a similar situation agreed that Boulogne was easier to get out of than uh, Calais. Uh, He was actually at large in Boulogne for almost three weeks when he was uh, spotted by a member of the military police and uh, he was stopped and was asked to give... uh, sort of account of what he was doing he wasn't able to so he was turned over back to his uh, regiment he was escorted back to his regiment who were then at uh, Hazelbrook and he was handed over to a man by the name of Sergeant um, Hogan and when he got there uh, orders were given that he was to be escorted as a prisoner back to behind the lines and and sort of two days later whilst uh, he was uh, back with his regiment he decided to make a a second attempt to try and uh, get away and uh, on the night of the 29th of April he he went to uh, to sleep in the billets as usual, um, but during the night he managed to slip away. And when a man by the name of Lance Corporal Hughes, who uh, uh, had the bed next to him, uh, woke up in the morning, he noticed that uh, John was gone, and he also noticed that his um, revolver had been uh, taken out of its holster. And uh, 11 days later, John was picked up once again in Boulogne by uh, another military policeman. He was escorted uh, under armed escort back to his uh, regiment, and he was actually charged with two counts of uh, desertion. And the date of his court-martial was actually set for the 31st of May, which of course was his daughter's first birthday. And when he went to the uh, court-martial, he pled uh, not guilty. And he, he simply said that he was incredibly worried. He said that he hadn't heard from home since December 1916. And he uh, was saying that his uh, daughter was incredibly ill. He tried to get home and he was at ATAP for a week, but he couldn't get home. And he was very, very worried. And he said that the only reason he tried to absent himself was because he wanted to go home and see his daughter it wasn't because he was a coward unfortunately the 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 panel who were sitting in judgment disagreed with this and uh, he uh, was uh, found uh, guilty on two counts of desertion was sentenced to death and as we've uh, seen he lost his life by firing party and is buried in Cabaret Rouge Cemetery, and it's it's a difficult so, a sort of uh, subject to think about because, say, everyone's you, we can't put ourselves in the mind of what this man was going through at the time. But it's a very sad story, and as the father of children myself, I uh, you can only imagine uh, what it must have been like and the stress and strain, and particularly the terrible conditions that uh, the men were fighting in through that winter and into the spring of nineteen seventeen. So, I, I have a a certain degree of sympathy for private. After he was executed, he was buried in the churchyard at uh, Meris, but his uh, grave couldn't be located uh, after the war and he's on a special memorial at Cabaret Rouge. It's a sad fact of war, that even though the war officially ended in 1918, that men continued to lose their lives while serving in the military. And there are two graves uh, that are of men who died in 1919, and they're buried uh, right next to each other. They were both um, aircraftmen. One was an aircraftman, first class Charles Peplow of 6th uh, Squadron Royal Air Force and aircraftman 1st Class Alfred Mace. And they both died on the 23rd of April 1919. Now, this was about two weeks before the uh, regiment was there, sorry, the the squadron, rather, was due to go out to uh, uh, Mesopotamia. In a very busy time, they were busy clearing up all the uh, the stores and getting the aircraft ready and doing servicing and that sort of thing. And the two men were working at a uh, supply depot behind where the front lines um, had uh, previously been uh, been and um, they were working in a hangar when uh, an aircraft that was in flight uh, developed problems and it spiraled down to ground and crashed through the roof of the hangar and landed on top of the two men who were working underneath. And they uh, both uh, obviously survived the war and then very, very tragic. I think we see these situations of people who lose their lives um, after uh, the war has ended. There doesn't really seem to be very much justice in that really, does there? But um, I'd say it's just a sort of sad uh, fact that uh, di- even though the conflict had officially finished, men continued to lose their lives as a result of uh, military service. This part of the battlefield is always associated with the nation of Canada. And the final grave that we're going to look at in today's journey through Cabaret Rouge Cemetery is one that has particular poignancy and significance to the nation of Canada. It was in Grave 7, Row E of Plot 8 that were, lay the body of an unknown Canadian soldier and on the morning of the 16th of May 2000 his body was exhumed and put into a coffin and was then flown over to Canada accompanied by a, a guard of honour and he had been chosen by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission at the request of the Government of Canada to be place to rest in the tomb of the unknown soldier in Ottawa and on the 28th of May the body was transported to the National uh, War Memorial on a, uh, a carriage that was pulled by the Royal uh, Canadian Mounted Police, it was one of their gun carriages and uh, there were almost 20,000 people who watched the burial take place with full uh, military honours. His body was buried in a silver uh, maple casket and uh, the, as part of the ceremony they performed something that i think is incredibly poignant but an incredibly sort of well thought out uh, kind of gesture and what happened was that when the casket was put into the tomb um, soldiers placed a handful of soil from each of canada's uh, different provinces and territories as well as some soil from the soldiers former grave site and, and i think it's a lovely gesture because obviously it's an unknown soldier and uh, to have the soil from all over Canada means inevitably that there must be a little piece of his original home touching his uh, grave. Uh, but what I think is particularly clever about uh, what the Canadians did in this is that the original headstone was replaced and the headstone that stands in uh, that gravesite now simply says the former grave of an unknown Canadian soldier of the First World War. His remains were removed on the 25th of May 2000 and now lie interred at the National War Memorial in Ottawa, Canada. But what's incredibly clever about the design of the Moor, and I think it's something incredibly uh, poignant and incredibly beautiful, is that the um, the memorial hall in which the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier Light has his original headstone uh, standing in it. And the hall has been designed in such a way that the sunlight will only frame the headstone once every 365 days so once a year and that time that the sunlight will fall on the headstone is on the 11th of November at 11 o'clock in the morning. I hope you've enjoyed this journey through a cemetery and this walk around Cabaret Rouge and what it uh, I think uh, I really enjoy doing these episodes because every cemetery you visit is uh, an opportunity to tell the stories of the men who lie buried within every headstone has a tale to tell and uh, the next time you're in a war cemetery just pick one of the names put it into google and see what you find and i think it's uh, always interesting to see what comes up and we who live in the world that we do at the moment owe it to those men i think who died in the great war to keep telling their stories and that for me is why recording this podcast is such an enjoyable experience. I'd like to dedicate this podcast to the memory of Ben Simmons. I'm sorry we never got our last beer, my friend, but I miss you. And until we meet again. I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of Footsteps of the Forum with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer Matt Dixon. And if you'd like to keep updated with what we are up to and what's happening, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where you can find us at uh, footsteps underscore pod, or you can have a look on our Instagram feed, which is footsteps of the fallen blog you'll find on Instagram. Uh, we've also got obviously our website, which you can find uh, everything to do with the podcast and pictures and uh, a blog and things like that. And you can find that at footstepsofthefallen.com. And if you have enjoyed what you are listening to and would like to help support the creative process, then please don't uh, hesitate to do so. If you go to our website, footstepsofthefallen.com and look at the page marked support us, you can either head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash footsteps pod and make a donation there. Or you can go to patreon.com footsteps of the fallen and uh, any help or assistance that you may be able to provide will be gratefully received so all it leaves me now to do is to bid you farewell and thank you very much for your company as we continued our journey walking in the footsteps of the fallen it's been a pleasure to have your company thank you and goodbye